Christchurch, New Malden, 6th of October 2019, 6.30 service. Stephen Kurt speaking on Understanding the Covenant as it awaited fulfilment. Well, the truth is that very few of us are good, I think, at waiting, are we? When there is something really exciting to look forward to, or particularly when we've been promised something really special, it's incredibly hard for us to wait. We usually long for that thing to happen, and uh, how we cope with uh, what happens in the meantime is usually quite a challenge. And yet, particularly when it comes to God's promises, that's what faith is all about, isn't it? Chapter 11 of the New Testament letter to the Hebrews uh, starts uh, by saying this. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And if you know Hebrews chapter 11, you'll know that it goes on to give a great big long list of heroes of faith, characters in the Old Testament who lived in this way. And it ends the chapter with this summary, having mentioned all the names of people like Abraham and Moses and so on. It says this, These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Now, if anything, this passage really makes waiting for God's promises a little bit more difficult, doesn't it? It's one thing to have to wait for things that we're promised that we eventually receive, but it's quite another to live by faith in things that actually don't come to us during our earthly lifetimes. And yet that's what these heroes of faith were commended for, weren't they? Believing and living by God's promises, even when the fulfilment of those promises extended beyond their own lifetimes. Last week, we looked here at the covenant theme in the hands of the prophets. We considered people like Elijah and Elisha, Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, and Jeremiah, prophets who proclaimed God's judgment upon Israel for breaking the covenant and who were very clear about the consequences of this, and yet prophets as well who spoke about God continuing to be faithful to his covenant promises. God continuing to be faithful beyond that judgment, a God who would find a way to still rescue his people and the world. Jeremiah in the 6th century BC is perhaps the most famous in speaking of how God would make a new covenant with his people by placing his law upon their hearts. But actually all of the prophets, not just Jeremiah, they spoke of a future when God would bring about something dramatically new that would enable his covenant to be fulfilled. The covenant that had been introduced with Noah and perhaps creation clarified with Abraham, developed through Moses, preserved through David, would God promised through the prophets be one day finally and fully established. But then the wait began. Those Israelites living in the Babylonian exile in the 6th century, they probably hoped that God's promises of the covenant being renewed would happen in their lifetime. And the people did indeed return from physical exile in Babylon. But those promises weren't yet uh, fulfilled. Those people weren't yet free. God's prom uh, promise of his presence was yet 
to be established amongst them. And the most obvious sign of the fact that God's new covenant hadn't come was the fact that foreign powers continued to dominate them and oppress them. So the Babylonians lasted for a certain amount of time and then they were destroyed, but they were replaced. They were replaced by the Persians. And the Persians ruled over them for a certain amount of time and then they were destroyed and they were replaced by the Greeks. And then the Greeks ruled over them for a certain amount of time and they were replaced by the Romans. Now it wasn't unbroken domination. There was the odd sign of God's continuing faithfulness, such as when a Jewish leader called Judas Maccabeus uh, led the Jews in overthrowing their Greek oppressors. And Jews still remember that event today when they celebrate Hanukkah. But after the Maccabean revolt, after this sort of great uprising and apparent success, the golden age that was expected didn't materialise. And as the years went on, and particularly uh, once the Romans were completely dominating uh, the Jewish people, it became tougher and tougher for Jews to really believe how God's promises, his covenant promises, were ever going to be fulfilled. And perhaps we personally can relate to that in our own lives. God has promised us that he's got everything in hand, hasn't he? God has promised us that his rescue of the world is underway. And God's called every single one of us to live my faith in these promises. But it's really hard, isn't it? It's really difficult. Particularly if there are tricky and unresolved things in our lives that we have to put up with. Perhaps ongoing problems that just appear to get nowhere near resolution in our lives. It might be there's a tricky situation uh, within your family life. It might be that you have a really difficult relationship in a work setting. It might be something that you long to be free from, for either for yourself or for someone close to you. Perhaps there's something painful or disappointing that you simply can't understand why God hasn't yet resolved. And particularly when you've prayed about those things for years and nothing appears to have changed, living by faith and waiting for God's promises can be hugely difficult, can't it? And it was precisely the same for the people of Israel. The wait was a difficult one waiting for these promises that God had made through the prophets, exciting and dynamic while they might have been, the wait was really difficult. And that's why we get growing really out of the prophets and in continuity with them, but going into a little bit more depth, we get the development within Judaism of what's sometimes called apocalyptic. Now, people often understand or misunderstand this word, apocalyptic. They often take it to refer to a final great destruction of the world. But that's based on a real misunderstanding of the word and a common misunderstanding that's uh, become so common that often people assume that's what it means. So if you Google, as I did, apocalyptic, these are some of the images uh, that come up just of complete destruction of the world. You know, I think a lot of these are drawn from computer games. But an apocalypse means an unveiling. An apocalypse is a revelation. It's a revelation 
It's like a drawing back of the veil of things that have previously been secret. And in the face of Israel having to wait for, for the fulfillment of God's covenant promises, what we see is the development of this way of looking at the world and the veil being drawn back so that its deepest mysteries can be revealed. And the most obvious example that we get of apocalyptic in the Old Testament is that book that was read to us so well earlier by Claire, the book of Daniel. Now, we're used to certain bits of the book of Daniel. The bit you're most uh, used to is that famous story of Daniel in the lion's den, chapter 6. Most of us uh, will know that story pretty well. But in the very next chapter, and then in the second half of the book, we see familiar stories, uh, like Daniel in the lion's den, giving way to these rather more disturbing, lurid visions of horrific monsters, grotesque monsters, going on the rampage for a little while, before eventually being destroyed by God and his faithful people, the Son of Man, rescued and vindicated. That was in the first reading that we had earlier from Daniel chapter 7. Now, rather than taking that passage literally and understanding it to be literally talking about the appearance of these horrific beasts, we've got to understand that it was powerful symbolism. It was powerful symbolism that spoke to the Jewish people who were waiting for God's promises uh, to uh, be revealed and to come to fulfillment, but struggling with the domination of all these successive foreign powers. It was powerful symbolism that spoke about how those successive powers that appeared to dominate the world, let's see them up there, there they are, Babylon, Persia, Greece and Rome, each of them are understood to correspond to one of those grotesque animals uh, that appears. The point is being made that however impressive they might have looked in those pictures there, they were nothing other than subhuman monsters or beasts, far less than the full humanity that God had intended in creation and that they would eventually, after ruling for a time, be destroyed. God's promises would be fulfilled, the book of Daniel proclaimed, but it would involve a cosmic battle because it wasn't God's rescue about the simple uh, rescuing of goodies from baddies. The fulfillment of God's covenant promises was far deeper than that. It involved something far more radical. It was about evil itself being defeated and that's why we get the massive depth of these visions going into so much more depth about the nature of God's victory and what it would involve. And that's also why Daniel is the uh, first book in the Bible where we hear about resurrection. This was in the second passage that Claire read to us from right at the end of the book of Daniel or near the end. And the book of Daniel spoke about the fact that when God finally, one day, brought about his covenant rescue, the definitive sign, the ultimate sign of that, was that death itself would be defeated. Everyone assumed at that time that death was the final invincible weapon of those in power. Tyrants and oppressors, once they put someone to death, there's not much that can be done in response, is there? So Daniel in this chapter 12 at the end of this prophecy is making this amazing statement 
that actually death itself was going to be defeated as God fulfilled his covenant promises. That God's people would be raised and they would then rule over his totally restored creation. Well, we're nearly ready in this series for Jesus, aren't we? After six weeks of looking at the covenant theme through the Old Testament, we're almost ready for Nathan next week to speak to us about how all of God's covenant promises came to fulfilment in the coming of his son, Jesus Christ. But before that, and in preparation uh, for next week, I think it's good to look at how the different Jewish groups who were around at the time of Jesus, how they each had a different approach in terms of waiting for God's covenant promises to be revealed. And as I go through these uh, groupings, or some of them, I think it's good for us to think which we're most similar to. As we struggle to wait for God's promises to be fulfilled, as we struggle to put our faith in what God has promised, alongside the realities of our everyday lives, the struggles, the disappointments, the problems, as well as the joys that we have, which of these different groupings that were around in the first century are we perhaps most similar to? So first of all, let's think about the Herodians and the Sadducees. Now, who were the Herodians and the Sadducees? Well, they're both mentioned in the Gospels. They are groups that Jesus encountered. And while they weren't identical, they've got enough in common for us to deal with them together. Basically, they were both aristocratic groups. The Herodians were Jewish aristocrats who supported King Herod. They were his sort of courtiers and nobility, really. And the Sadducees, well, they were also uh, wealthy aristocrats, but they dominated the priesthood. And what they both had in common was that their power came through cooperating with the Romans. Like everyone else, they pretty much hated the Romans and wanted rid of them. But for now, they saw that the only sensible option, as they saw it, was to balance their belief, or certainly their official belief, in God's covenant promises with a hefty dose of compromise. So they really had a bob each way. Herod himself wasn't just this cynical, cruel ruler that we can imagine. He spent a fortune in trying to rebuild the temple. Herod made it this enormous statement of belief in God's covenant promises. And the Sadducees, well, they ran the temple. They kept Israel's religion going, or the centre of it. But what both of these groupings combined was doing enough religion to really pay lip service to their belief in God's covenant promises and that he'd one day fulfil them. They combined doing enough religion with actually doing nothing that would challenge the status quo. The Herodians and the Sadducees, they officially believed that God would fulfil his covenant promises, but in practice they had hardly any investment in anticipating those promises. There wasn't much that they actually did in their lives that anticipated that coming kingdom of God that had been promised. They had very little active faith in that future that they couldn't yet see. And the biggest giveaway to this was that both the Herodians and the Sadducees, they wanted nothing at all to do with apocalyptic books like Daniel. 
They didn't even include them uh, within the canon. And they, in particular, didn't want anything to do with beliefs like resurrection. You see, as I said earlier, but it's worth repeating, resurrection, with its belief that death, the final weapon of the tyrant and the oppressor, would be defeated, is a massively subversive doctrine. Resurrection is something which hugely challenges the status quo and challenges those who are in positions of power. People sometimes joke that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection because they were Sadducee. That's one of the ways that you remember that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. Abby's doing A-level religious studies and I taught her that the other day. I said, tell it to your teacher. But in reality, the reason why the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection wasn't because they just had sort of different beliefs about the afterlife. It was because they didn't want any fundamental challenge to the status quo. They wanted a comfortable compromise with those in power above them. And keeping quiet or not believing in resurrection is one of the ways that you simply go along with the status quo. The Herodians and the Sadducees, they had a certain amount of faith. We can't dismiss them as uh, complete cynics. But it was a faith that was carefully constructed around preserving the status quo. And we need to think about whether our faith can sometimes be similar. Doing enough to tick the official boxes, as they did, but sometimes that can be combined with actually doing as little as possible that will mean our faith challenges the status quo. That was the Herodians and the Sadducees, and uh, Jesus did uh, clash with them and did challenge them. I'll come to that later. They were very different. They can look the complete opposite from another group, which were the Zealots. Now, the Zealots were the complete opposite, on the face of it, of the Herodians and the Sadducees. You see, the zealots, they longed for God's kingdom to arrive and rid the world of evil, and they believed that their job uh, before that day was to anticipate it by showing as much zeal for God, that's where they got their name, and to fight evil, the evil, oppressive pagans, with every bit of power they possessed. And the zealots, well, they believed fervently in resurrection, and it helped them to risk death. They would put their life on the line to fight and kill as many Romans as possible, partly because they believed in resurrection. They believed if they died a martyr's death, they would be amongst those raised if they fought the Romans and treacherous Jews as they saw it, like the Herodians. But the Zealots got two things, at least, really badly wrong. Firstly, what they got wrong was believing that evil was only contained within people like the Romans and the Herodians. What they got wrong was believing that evil could simply be contained within those who, in their view, were particularly bad. They didn't really have an understanding that evil runs through every single human being, including them. And secondly, and perhaps even worse, they believed that it was okay to fight evil with its own weapons. They believed so strongly in opposing the evil that they saw in their enemies that they pretty much didn't mind how they fought it. And that, again, is something that we can be really tempted to do. When the cause, as we see it, is righteous, 
and when we identify uh, certain people or certain movements as completely getting in the way of God's purposes, it's very easy for us to then think that we can use pretty much every, any weapon that's available to us to oppose them. But when you think about it, what the Zealots did was just as much a compromise with evil as what the Herodians and the Sadducees were doing. It was just a different type of compromise that they were involved in. And in contrast to both of these approaches, the approach of the Herodians and the Sadducees and also the Zealots, well, very different was the approach of the Essenes and the Pharisees. Now, who were these groupings? Well, the Essenes were a group that believed that God will fulfill his promises and they wanted to avoid any compromise with evil. They wanted to avoid the sort of compromise with evil they saw in the Herodians and the Sadducees. They also wanted to avoid the compromise with evil that they saw in the Zealots. They wanted to avoid both. And so they thought the best thing to do was to withdraw from the world into a sort of holy huddle and try to obey God as faithfully as possible while awaiting the fulfilment of his covenant promises. Now, if you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found at Qumran in 1947, they, we're fairly sure, belonged to an Essene community that lived out in the desert in caves like that, and they believed, as I say, in staying completely separate from a sinful world and waiting for God to do his stuff, waiting for God to fulfill those covenant promises, and then one day when that happened, they would be amongst those he vindicated. So that was the Essenes. And the Pharisees, well, they were similar, really, with the difference being that they too believed that they had to stay as separate as possible from the pagans, but they believed that they needed to live amongst the rest of the Israelites to be an influence upon them. It was still pretty much about staying separate and obeying God's law as faithfully as possible. And like the Essenes, the Pharisees believed that if they really obeyed God's law as faithfully as possible, then when God acted to fulfill his promises, they would be shown to be vindicated. They would be included within his kingdom, within the resurrection that he had promised. So what do we hear about those groupings? And let's uh, see them up there all together. Which ones are we tempted to be most similar to as we await in our lives the fulfillment of God's purposes? Are we tempted to be a little bit like those compromising Herodians and Sadducees, ticking enough of the boxes uh, of our faith while balancing that with a hefty dose of compromise with uh, rather dodgy things? Are we tempted to be a bit like the violent zealots? Perhaps uh, full of righteous desire to follow God and see his kingdom come, but tempted perhaps to compromise in a different way in some of the methods that we might adopt in order to bring that about? Or are we in danger of being more like the separatist Essenes and Pharisees? Are we in danger of sort of rather withdrawing from the world into a holy huddle and just uh, leaving it to God uh, to get on with it? The truth is that we probably swap around a bit, don't we? But it's still worth asking the question. Is it our tendency to blur too much with the surrounding world? Is it our tendency to try and bring about the right things but using the wrong weapons? Or is it the tendency to withdraw into a holy huddle, 
leaving God to sort of bring about the right things in his own time. The Pharisees tend to get a rather bad press, but perhaps before the coming of Jesus, they were the ones actually getting it most right. Because they were seeking to stay distinct from the world and obey God, but they were still trying to be an influence for God in the world. Well, we're going to look at Jesus coming to fulfill the covenant next week. But it's important to anticipate that by understanding this week that Jesus challenged really very radically all of these perspectives on how people should wait for God's covenant promises to be fulfilled. So God totally challenged the Herodians and the Sadducees' compromise with paganism. Jesus proclaimed that God's radical kingdom was arriving and turning every single bit of the status quo completely upside down. So Jesus, when he was asked about the resurrection by the Sadducees, very strongly affirmed it. And Jesus also said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And yet at the same time, Jesus also rejected the zealots' use of evil in their attempt to bring God's kingdom. So Jesus said, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And he also said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Fight evil, but with totally different weapons. And Jesus also challenged the Essene withdrawal from the world. When he exhorted people to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Jesus didn't call us to uh, withdraw from the world. He called us uh, to be in the world but not of the world. That's a summary of his teaching in John's Gospel. And he also challenged the Pharisees as well. Because Jesus challenged the Pharisees by saying that because God's kingdom was arriving with his coming, all of the covenant promises were bursting out of the categories that had previously contained them. So in particular, laws designed to keep God's people separate from the outside world, which had a really important role for a time, Jesus didn't declare that those laws were so much wrong as now obsolete. Because with his coming, Jesus showed that a power had entered the world that could take on evil and defeat it. That's why Jesus spent his time doing things that the Pharisees were horrified by, like eating with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. Jesus was showing that with his coming, a power from God had arrived that could take on evil and could defeat it. And the Pharisees couldn't handle that. They couldn't handle a supposed rabbi behaving in that way because they couldn't understand how what they saw as compromise with evil was actually taking it on and defeating it. And as we await the final fulfillment of God's covenant promises, Jesus calls us as the church to be distinct from the world and yet totally involved within it. Jesus calls us to fight a constant battle with evil but using the very different weapon of love. Jesus came, as we'll see more next week, to bring the fulfilment of all of those covenant promises that God made to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, to David and through the prophets. 
And Jesus brought those promises to fulfillment in a gloriously unexpected manner that no one could have predicted. Jesus brought those promises to fulfillment by bringing evil, the real enemy, face to face with God's love when he died on the cross. And that love of God that was in Jesus overwhelmed that evil and defeated it. And Jesus calls us, every single one who would be his follower, to live within that victory. He called us to live within that victory by anticipating in the way that we live the resurrection that he promises us in the future. And to repeat in the way that we live that death which refuses to respond to evil with its own weapons but confronts it instead with love. We're called to wait for the final fulfilment of God's promises but it's a proactive waiting. It's not a passive waiting. It's a dynamic and exciting waiting. It's a waiting that has a crucial role to play. And it's a waiting that is characterised more than anything by being full of God's transforming love, confronting evil and taking away its power. Let's pray.